Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Vaccine news that could make Halloween the least horrifying day of the year. The lead starts right now. Pfizer says its vaccine is super effective in little kids. Will they be able to get the shot by time for trick-or-treats? Absolute shock on the movie set. Alec Baldwin responding today after he killed a woman with a prop gun in what appears to be a tragic accident. Plus, a town in Michigan has its water supply cut off after poison was found in the pipes. Critics say this is a clear case of environmental racism. Welcome to the Lead MJ Tapper. We start today with our health lead vaccines for little ones, ages 5 to 11. It's close. Pfizer says their dose, which is one-third the size of an adult dose, is safe and almost 91% effective in preventing any symptomatic infection in kids. As parents eagerly wait for those shots for their kids before the holidays, tens of millions of more American adults can now get a booster shot. The CDC director last night gave the final green light for eligible people who got the Moderna or the Johnson & Johnson vaccines. CNN's Alexandra Field now weighs through the confusion about the guidance for mixing and matching booster shots as the CDC gives a sort of yellow light, saying it's okay to switch the brand of vaccine you use for boosters. They're leaving it up to you. And this is really great news because we now have a booster plan for all three of our COVID-19 vaccines. More protection for millions more Americans. Moderna and J&J boosters joining Pfizer now going into arms. And the CDC chief says people can choose which booster shot they get. Some people very well may prefer to get the the vaccine they originally got, but the CDC now will allow new recommendations to mix and match, and we do not indicate a preference. The CDC also appealing to pregnant and nursing women to get vaccinated and to get boosters when eligible. We have um, relatively low rates of vaccination for pregnant women in general. Dr. Fauci says soon even more people could be eligible for booster shots. I would be rather confident that as we get further and further over the next weeks to months, that the age limit of it is going to be lowered. FDA advisors meet next week to decide on shots for children as young as five. They'll review new data from Pfizer posted today showing their vaccines are nearly 91 percent effective against symptomatic COVID among five to 11 year olds and that the vaccine appeared safe and there were no incidents of myocarditis or inflammation of the heart muscle in the trial. The White House is already laying the groundwork to get the smaller doses into smaller arms. The administration is working really hard to make sure the vaccine is in the field so we can get started vaccinating immediately. And Jake, there's also a really interesting new study out today. Since nearly the beginning of the pandemic, we have been talking about these cases of brain fog experienced by people who have had COVID. This study is showing us that that brain fog can persist for months after the illness and not just for people who have severe cases of COVID and end up in the hospital, but for people who never go to the hospital. They are also coping with brain fog 
for months, according to this study. Hmm. All right, Alexandra Field in New York, thanks so much. Joining us now, CNN medical analyst, Dr. Jonathan Reiner. He's a cardiologist and a professor at George Washington University uh, Medical Center. Dr. Reiner, good to see you. Take a listen to the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, this morning. We will not boost our way out of this pandemic. Even after you boost, it remains important for us to remain smart about our prevention strategies while we still have over 93% of our counties with high or moderate community transmission. How much urgency should people eligible for a booster shot take to, to get that extra dose? Uh, I think I think they should do it right away. What we know is that after six months, the efficacy of this uh, of these vaccines to uh, prevent infection uh, wanes significantly. And the sooner you get boosted, the more your protection is. Uh, I think if you've been not, I think we know that if you've been vaccinated, you are very unlikely to get severely ill if should you get a so-called breakthrough infection. But it's going to take you out of action for a couple of weeks. And more importantly, it then uh, makes you more likely to infect somebody else who might be vulnerable, either unvaccinated or immunocompromised. So I think everyone who is eligible for a booster should get a booster. Uh, The CDC's official stance uh, on mixing and matching. So if we got a Pfizer vaccine, whether or not you get the Moderna, JJ or Pfizer booster, their official stance is, quote, we will not articulate a preference. Uh, as whether or not you should stick to the same brand. But shouldn't people exercise some discretion? We know, uh, for instance, people who are worried about blood clots with the J&J vaccine, shouldn't they get one of the Moderna or or Pfizer vaccine boosters? And if people who have a history of heart inflammation, shouldn't they maybe stay away from Moderna or Pfizer and get a J&J booster? Absolutely. I think the CDC uh, missed uh, yet another opportunity to be clear with the public. Uh, What I've been telling my patients is the following. If you haven't had any issues with your first two doses of an mRNA vaccine, stick with the mRNA vaccine. Just to be clear, the mRNA is Pfizer Pfizer and Moderna. Moderna. So if you've had Pfizer, get a Pfizer booster. If if you've had Moderna, get the Moderna booster, which is actually a reduced dose. It's it's half dose. Now, if you've had J&J, I think most people would benefit from getting an mRNA booster, not the J&J booster, particularly women under the age of 50, where we saw that rare but serious complication of cerebral venous thrombosis. So what I would suggest, again, to keep it simple, if you've had one dose of the J&J vaccine, get either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine as a booster. And most importantly, talk to your doctor if you've had any sort of, any sort of side effect one way or the other. That's probably the first thing to do is talk to your doctor. Yeah. You heard Alexandra mention this new study that shows nearly a quarter of COVID patients in the Mount Sinai Health System Registry had brain fog, a quarter. Uh, it was worse for people who had been hospitalized with COVID, but it also happened in people who were not hospitalized with COVID. What causes this brain fog, and is there any treatment for brain fog a- as a long-haul COVID symptom? So think of brain fog as your computer is running a bit slow. Right? You're having uh, difficulty processing information, uh, recalling things, uh, managing lists, doing sort of comp- more complicated uh, mental calculations. We think it's a, a combination of things, perhaps caused by uh, an inflammatory response in the brain, uh, perhaps caused by hypoxia from the pneumonia that you get with the uh, virus, perhaps even in some instances caused by direct uh, involvement of the brain by the virus itself. And again, it, it, it leads to, in a significant number of people, these problems with what we call executive function, the sort of higher processing. 
and it can last for months. No one's really quite sure exactly how to, to treat them. Uh, long COVID clinics around the country have noticed this for a long time, really since the virus uh, began. It can dissipate over time, and there might be some uh, sort of rehab techniques to help uh, folks get through this. Uh, a study published on the CDC website today shows people who got any of the COVID vaccines were less likely to die from any cause, yeah. not just COVID, compared with people who were unvaccinated. What's the significance of that? You know, there's been this conspiracy disinformation that the COVID vaccines themselves lead to death, that somehow, you know, the CDC and the federal government have been covering up the deaths caused by the vaccines. Now, this study shows, I think, very convincing, convincingly, not only is there no increased mortality associated with uh, getting vaccinated, but in fact, it looks like the mortality rate is, is lower in folks who are vaccinated. Lastly, the CDC director said this morning there's been a 15 percent drop in cases compared to last week, but only a 4 percent drop in deaths. Is that because deaths are a lagging indicator? First, weather yeah. goes up or down. First come the cases, then the hospitalizations, then the deaths. Right, exactly. So it takes about a week or so to get sick enough to get hospitalized. And then it takes another week or two, uh, sadly, to die from this virus. So as our caseloads drop, we'll see hospitalizations drop next. And we're seeing that now, uh, about uh, 15 uh, to 20 percent drop over the last uh, two weeks. And then two to three weeks later, we'll see a decline in, in death. So it's coming. All right, Dr. Jonathan Reiner, thank you so much. Have a good weekend. Time is running out to convince the senators who could cost President Biden his entire economic agenda. Today, the House Speaker offers new hope. Plus, a tragedy born from Hollywood. Alec Baldwin responds after he is involved in a shooting death on set. A stunt coordinator who just spoke to the detectives on the case will join us ahead. In our politics lead, an elusive target coming into sharper focus. House Democratic leadership aiming to vote next week on the president's infrastructure and social safety net bills. This on the heels of an optimistic Biden using CNN's town hall last night to convince the American people, or try to anyway, that his plans will make a huge difference in their lives. But a deal still does remain just out of reach, with four or five major outstanding issues, including the rather important matter of how to pay for it. As CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, the White House today saying now is not the time to take our foot off the gas. President Biden trying to seal a deal with Democrats. We had a very positive meeting this morning. I'm very optimistic. Biden meeting with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer today as they attempt to unite their party on his agenda. The alternative is not a larger package. The alternative is nothing. Biden optimistic about getting an agreement on his plan to reshape the social safety net and fight climate change while candidly revealing during a CNN town hall the difficulty of negotiating. When you're in the United States Senate and you're a president of the United States and you have 50 Democrats, every one is a president. <laughs> Biden conceding his plan for two free years of community college won't make the final cut. So far, Mr. Manchin and one other person has indicated they will not support free community college. His proposal for federal paid leave slashed to one month. It is down to four weeks. And the reason it's down to four weeks, they can't get 12 weeks. 
One of the most popular parts of his plan, raising taxes on corporations to pay for it, likely won't happen in light of Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema's opposition. First of all, she's smart as the devil. Where she's not supportive is she says she will not raise a single penny in taxes on the corporate side and or on wealthy people, period. Also plans to expand Medicare benefits to dental, vision and hearing also now seems like a stretch. Will all three of those still be covered? That's a reach. The bill is still expected to include some of the biggest Democratic priorities, including expanding Medicare, universal pre-K, and billions for climate change. Biden also taking his strongest stance yet on ending the filibuster, amid Democrats' attempts to pass voting rights legislation. I also think we're going to have to move to the point where we fundamentally alter the filibuster. But Biden adding that any push to end the 60-vote threshold in the Senate would have to wait for the passage of his spending bills. If, in fact, I get myself into, at this moment, the debate on the filibuster, I lose at least three votes. Of course, Jake, we know the president doesn't have any votes to lose here, and Democrats are up against a self-imposed deadline today of agreeing to a framework on that bill. But so far, no deal has been announced by Democrats on Capitol Hill, though the White House does say President Biden will continue to speak to lawmakers throughout the weekend, Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Let's go to Capitol Hill now, where the White House enthusiasm meets with some skepticism. The Democrats can reach a deal by next week. CNN's Lauren Fox joins us live now. Lauren, Progressive Democrats are telling you that they're feeling a little nervous today. Well, that's exactly right, because the president was so specific in really laying out the contours of where these negotiations stand. It became very clear to progressives today on Capitol Hill that the center of gravity has really been moving toward moderates like Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin because... They have to have every single Democratic senator in the U.S. Senate agreeing to get to yes on this bill. So they are concerned about some of the provisions on climate and whether they're going to make it in there, whether they're going to be strong enough. There are also concerns about reductions in paid family leave. It used to be at 12 weeks. Now they're looking at something around four weeks. And that's something the president laid out yesterday. The child tax credit used to be many years. Now it is just one year of a renewal. So that's a concern for a lot of progressives up here on Capitol Hill. That doesn't ultimately mean that they won't vote yes for this bill. They realize how important this is to the president's agenda, but they argue, look, these are all things we campaigned on. These are all popular provisions. Why are we giving in to people like Manchin and Cinema when these are things that we all agreed on? Jake. All right, Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. The Texas governor ordering the arrest of hundreds of migrants, throwing them in jail without charges or a lawyer. Now some are speaking to CNN. Stay with us. In our national lead, accusations of constitutional rights violations in Texas after a recent surge of arrests at the border In June, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott ordered the arrest of people on state trespassing charges if they were found illegally crossing the border. So far, around 1,300 migrants have been detained by Texas law enforcement in this new crackdown, many held in repurposed prisons without formal charges or legal representation. CNN's Rosa Flores traveled to Texas to speak to these jailed migrants, some of whom fear retaliation for telling their stories. 
He says that he was told that he had rights to an attorney. This husband and father from Mexico sat in a Texas prison on suspicion of trespassing charges. But did you get an attorney? No. For 52 days without being formally charged, says his attorney. 43 of those days without access to counsel and for weeks without being able to call family. He says that he just went up to his cell started crying. His attorneys let us interview him through Zoom, but we can't show you his face because he fears retaliation. We created a system to arrest and jail illegal immigrants. He is one of hundreds of men who were arrested under Governor Greg Abbott's effort to arrest undocumented immigrants for trespassing into private property who claimed their constitutional rights were violated. Chair Collier, here. During a recent state legislative committee hearing, the Texas Indigent Defense Commission testified 155 people were arrested and went weeks without counsel. How was it for you to be in there without knowing why you were in jail? He says it was very frustrating. In some cases, attorney Amrutha Jindal says the arrestees practically disappeared. Their families couldn't find them. Because charges hadn't been filed against them, there was no official record in the clerk's office that they were even that they even existed. And while Governor Abbott announced he wanted to arrest criminals. Yeah, very dangerous people who are involved in human trafficking, drug trafficking. So far, over 1,300 men have been arrested on suspicion of criminal trespassing, and the attorney whose legal aid group represents about 560 testified many of them are asylum seekers. We have journalists, political activists, university students. The facts are what they are. David Martinez, the Valverde County attorney who prosecutes these misdemeanors, says that from June to September, he rejected or dismissed about 40 percent of Valverde County cases, mostly because the migrants were seeking asylum. Like the Venezuelan man in the body camera video showing Texas state troopers standing by an open gate. They should have stopped him and said, this is private property. But instead, they even point to this general area appearing to point the migrant onto the private property, Martinez says, and then arresting him. And I rejected the case. The Texas Department of Public Safety declined to comment. Martinez says that another troubling case happened in this area where 11 men alleged that law enforcement zip-tied them in pairs, walked them for about 20 minutes, made them jump a three-meter fence, and they were later arrested by Texas troopers for trespassing. Immediately, I noticed that there was no supplemental reports from Border Patrol. There's a directive to all troopers that they are to wear body cams. Uh, when I first received the case, there were no body cams. In a statement to CNN, U.S. Customs and Border Protection said that the 11 men fled on foot into private property when they were stopped by agents. Texas DPS did not answer CNN's questions, but told the Texas Tribune that the migrants' claims were inaccurate. My concern was I didn't have tangible evidence that I could rely on. Uh, so I made the decision to dismiss the case. And those state officials testified they're now meeting regularly to ensure arrestees get counsel in a timely manner. CNN talked to two jailed migrants last week who say several men in their pods have been in jail for up to three months without counsel. How are the men who are have been there for 80, 90 days? He says that it's very depressing for them. CNN made the state of Texas aware of this and public defenders are looking into it. What we're seeing is a system that is not respecting their constitutional rights. 
asked Governor Greg Abbott for an interview and that request was declined. Then I sent his office an email with specific questions about the content of this story. And my questions were not answered. Instead, his press office sent me a statement that said in part that it's the Biden administration that's ignoring border communities and that the state of Texas is investing $3 billion in border security. And Jake, I learned late last night that since I've been asking about this, the state has found at least one migrant who had been sitting in jail since May. I'm told that that migrant now has counsel. Jake? Rosa Flores, thank you so much. Turning to our world lead, almost 200 American citizens remain stuck in Afghanistan, desperate to leave but unable to get out. This new number from the State Department represents a sharp increase in the number of Americans that the Biden administration acknowledges are trying to get out of the now Taliban-controlled country, a much higher number than the administration publicly stated at the time of the U.S. withdrawal. We do know now that 234 U.S. citizens and 144 permanent residents have safely left since August 31st. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins us now, live from the State Department. Kylie, in August, Secretary of State Blinken said the number of Americans who remained in Afghanistan and wanted to leave was, quote, likely closer to 100. What is the actual number? How did they get it wrong? Yeah, so Jake, based on the information that the State Department had at the time, that's what they were saying, that there were likely 100 to 200 Americans who wanted to get out of the country, who were still in Afghanistan when the U.S. withdrew. It's a little bit confusing, however, because since then there have been more than 200 Americans uh, that the United States has helped facilitate get out of the country. Now, the State Department is saying, look, this number is constantly changing. The reason for that is because a lot of these Americans, a lot of them dual Afghan American citizens, have been changing their minds, you know, coming forth in recent weeks saying they want to leave, whereas earlier they weren't saying that they want to leave. So they are continuing to support those who want to leave. I do think it's important to note two things about uh, the moments after the complete U.S. withdrawal. First of all, it was incredibly chaotic. So uh, the picture that the State Department had of the situation on the ground of those Americans may not have been as entirely complete uh, as it may it may be now. And then the second thing is that the United States didn't know exactly how many Americans in total were on the ground in Afghanistan when the U.S. withdrew. And that's because Americans who are living there or visiting there are not required to tell the State Department. Kylie, what is the Biden administration doing to help these Americans get out of Afghanistan? They are continuing to help facilitate these flights out of the country. Um, It is an incredibly challenging situation there on the ground. The humanitarian situation is, of course, on the decline. I've talked to Americans who have been frustrated uh, by the efforts from the State Department, saying that some of their flights have been canceled uh, after they had been booked. They're also working with outside groups, the State Department, however, who are able to get in touch with some of these Americans, to connect them to some of the folks that are trying to leave. this is an ongoing effort, and it doesn't seem like this is something that is going to be concluded anytime in the near future because there are consistently these Americans, as I said, a lot of them dual citizens, who are coming forth in recent weeks and deciding they actually do want to leave Afghanistan. Jake? All right, Kylie Atwood, thanks so much. Coming up, Alec, uh, actor Alec Baldwin shoots a prop gun on set, and it kills one person and injures another. We're going to talk to a Hollywood stunt coordinator who is also talking to detectives working the case. That's next.
In our national lead, a horrible tragedy on a film set in New Mexico. Actor Alec Baldwin says he is fully cooperating with investigators after he fired a prop gun, which seemingly accidentally killed the director of photography, Helena Hutchins, and injured the director, Joe Souza. It is not clear if they were filming or rehearsing on set at the time, as CNN's Lucy Kafanov reports. Prop gun accidents, while tragic and rare, are sadly not unheard of. A very real tragedy on a Hollywood set. A distraught Alec Baldwin stood outside the Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office after authorities say the actor discharged a prop firearm on the set of the film Rust at the Bonanza Creek Ranch. Director Joel Souza rushed by ambulance to a local hospital with injuries. The film's director of photography, Helena Hutchins, was pronounced dead after being transported via helicopter to the hospital. 42-year-old Hutchins, who posted on Instagram from the New Mexico location only days ago, lived in Los Angeles with her husband and son and was credited in the production of dozens of film, TV and video titles during her career. Police were called out to the scene on Thursday afternoon and no one was charged, though New Mexico's district attorney says they do not know if charges will be filed. Authorities say they're still in the initial stages of their investigation into what led to the fatal incident on set and what type of projectile was fired from a prop gun commonly used on movie sets that aren't without their own risks. Prop weapons do have a dangerous factor to them, even though they're a lot safer than using a live firearm on set. Today, Baldwin tweeting from the account he shares with his wife, there are no words to convey my shock and sadness regarding the tragic accident that took the life of Helena Hutchins. I'm fully cooperating with the police investigation to address how this tragedy occurred, and I am in touch with her husband, offering my support to him and his family. These tragic accidents on movie sets have happened before. Is that gasoline I smell? Actor Brandon Lee, son of Bruce Lee, was killed in 1993 on the set of the movie The Crow when a fragment of a dummy bullet became lodged in a prop gun, which fatally wounded Lee in the abdomen. Shannon Lee posting on her brother's verified Twitter account. Our hearts go out to the family of Helena Hutchins and to Joelle Souza, and all involved in the incident on Rust. No one should ever be killed by a gun on a film set, period. And Jake, we're just in front of the sheriff's office here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Officials here tell us that they have uh, issued a search warrant on the property where the incident took place, where the shooting took place. They expect that search to continue over the weekend. But because of the high profile nature of this tragic incident, this tragic shooting, they do not expect any press releases or any press conferences before Monday. We're still working on getting more answers to why this tragedy took place. Jake. All right, Lucy Kafanov in Santa Fe. Thank Thank you so much. Here to discuss is Steve Wolf. He's a stunt coordinator and a firearm safety expert for movies and TV. Steve has also worked with detectives in the past to investigate deaths on movie sets. Steve, I understand that you have spoken to the investigators who are working this case. What have you learned? I've learned that they're very busy trying to gather information about what happened. Uh, they're trying to figure out what type of firearm was used, whether it had the proper modifications to make it actually a prop gun. Uh, you know, anything that an actor touches on set technically is a prop. So if I'm an actor and this is a pen, this is a prop pen. Has this been pen been modified to keep someone from being stabbed in the throat? Probably not. And when we talk about prop guns, we're specifically talking about guns that have been modified where live ammo cannot pass through the barrel and live ammo cannot be placed into the cylinder. So if you have modified a gun like this, then it is a prop gun. Then it cannot accept live ammo. It just simply won't fit in there. 
So that's that's one thing that we need to find out. Unmodified gun called a prop gun or actual modified prop gun. And then so far as what was put inside the gun, were we dealing with live ammo like this that has a bullet on the end of it? Or were we dealing with just a casing with powder in it? These are some of the things that we have to find out as the investigation unfolds. You've been asked to go to the scene. Uh, What are the big, big things you'll be looking for? So I'd like to see the gun. I'd like to see if it was properly modified to actually be classified as a prop gun. And I'd like to see the box that the ammunition came from. Was this a a properly manufactured blank round? Or was this, in fact, just ordinary ammunition with bullets, casing, primer, and powder? These are some of the things that we'll have to find out so we can know where we started to go wrong. But we we went wrong in at least three directions, right? Wrong gun, wrong ammo, and improper handling of the firearm in all likelihood. Uh, even if you, you know, have a bazooka and you fire it live round going down range, if you don't point it at somebody, you're not going to kill them. So the fact that this gun was pointed at someone and then discharged is you know, an absolute inexcusable violation of firearm safety rules. Do we know if uh, Alec Baldwin was meant to be shooting in the direction of the director and the cinematographer when this happened? The director was wounded, the cinematographer was killed. I mean, is it possible they were behind the camera and the shot was him pointing at the camera? What do we know about that? We don't know much about that. Uh, and, And we have to really be precise with the words, whether we say in the direction of or if we say at. You know, if, 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 not, not to trigger anybody who's had a gun pointed at them. But if I say, you know, in the direction of, we're looking at something like this. If we say at, we're looking at something like this. So in the direction of where you're off by 10 or 15 degrees might be acceptable. Even with a blank, you don't want to point that at somebody because wadding can come out and hurt somebody. Uh, uh, Somebody lost their ear on a movie when a shotgun was discharged and just the blank wadding came out, caught their ear and ripped it off. So you want to be off by a, a margin that is greater than the expansion of the possible projectile or anything coming out of the gun. You just, uh, and, and clearly that wasn't done. You just uh, heard in, in Lucy's piece uh, a reference to the actor Brandon Lee, uh, who lost his yeah. life. Uh, I believe that you, you looked into that as well. Explain to, to people yes. how it's yeah. possible that shooting a prop weapon could kill one person, could injure a, a, another, uh, especially if there is not live ammunition necessarily involved in these prop weapons. So when we're dealing with a casing full of gunpowder, gunpowder essentially explodes. It turns instantly from a solid to a gas. It creates a tremendous amount of pressure. When it's a blank, simply that pressure is released and some fire and noise with it. That pressure is capable of killing people. John Eric Hexham was killed by the pressure coming out of the gun, pushing a piece of his skull through his brain. In Brandon Lee's case... They were using what is called a dummy round, which is different than a blank round. A dummy round has, for all external appearances, everything in common with live ammo, except that it doesn't have gunpowder inside it. There's no propellant, and there's no, um, you know, no source of ignition at the back. There's no primer. So you could put this into a gun if you needed to see an actor loading a gun on camera. Then you take this out, and when you go to film later... You put in the one that has no ammo. What happened in Brandon Lee's case is the dummy round had been mismanufactured. 
this had not been crimped properly. So the bullet came unseated and remained inside the cylinder. So they put this in. They meant to take this out, but only this came out. And what remained inside was the bullet. When they put the blank behind the bullet, now you had a complete cartridge, everything that was necessary to, to cause a, you know, a fully discharging weapon. And that, that's how Brandon Lee was called. So it wasn't a bullet fragment. It was a portion of the entire cartridge, mm-hmm. that portion consisting of the entire bullet, 44 Magnum in that case. Steve, given how advanced special effects are these days, why do prop weapons even need to be fired at all? They don't. You, you could take this gun, we could, you know, we could go click, 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 click. We can dub in the sound effects and we can dub in, you know, we can put in the muzzle flash with CGI. And many films do that. Uh, so unless it was simply a director's preference or an actor's preference, you know, there's no reason to have uh, blank discharging guns on set. Steve Wolf, thank you so much for your time and expertise. That really helped explain it. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today. Just because you get a water bill does not mean the water is safe. CNN visits yet another town in Michigan where the water has dangerous levels of lead in it. But people are still being forced to pay for it. Stay with us. In our national lead, try brushing your teeth or showering or cooking with no running water. Well, that's the new reality for 10,000 people in one Michigan town. And if this scene reminds you of the Flint water crisis, you're sadly spot on. Lead in the drinking water is at dangerous levels in this predominantly black town of Benton Harbor, Michigan. And just as workers were trying to address the health crisis leaking into people's homes, a decades-old water main burst. CNN's Miguel Marquez is in Benton Harbor, Michigan for us. That's where residents are all too familiar with failing city resources. Thank you. Courtney Sherrod and her family of five go through a lot of bottled water. We go through about 200 bottles a week. A week? A week. I have three children and a big husband at home. She says they sometimes go to the gym in the next town over just for a shower. My children had to go to school the next day, so we went to the Y and we made sure everybody took showers at the Y the night before so that they could go to school. The Y's in a different town? It's in St. Joe. Right. Where the water is clean and they pay lower water bills than us. Benton Harbor, population 10,000, the latest high-profile American town dealing with lead in the water. I'm really concerned about it because I've heard the danger of it. So you want to stay away from it as much as you can. What do you use bottled water for? Drinking, cooking, and brushing your teeth. Since 2018, samples of water taken from hundreds of homes here have shown lead above the federal threshold of 15 parts per billion gallons of water. Nobody, nobody should have water that they can't drink and have to pay for it. Nobody should have contaminated water. This is America. This should not be happening to any community. But Benton Harbor isn't alone. The Natural Resources Defense Council, an environmental group, estimates some 22 million Americans, most in the Midwest and Northeast, may be getting their drinking water, at least in part, from lead pipes. They are concentrated in these older communities, which also are disproportionately where we have more vulnerable populations, people who are poor and and predominantly people of color. Michigan's Democratic governor signed an executive directive to expedite the replacement of lead pipes here, asking for more money from the state legislature. 
The Republican-led state legislature so far has responded by opening an investigation into the governor's response to the water crisis. None of it building confidence for those who live here. The governor says they have a plan. They're going to replace all the lead pipes in 18 months. Uh, do you believe it? No. Why? Nothing's happened all this time. So why should I believe? Does Flint have new water pipes? They're still working on it. Okay. There, there you go. Now, of course, people here in Benton Harbor and across the state of Michigan, very sensitive to the issues of Flint and the massive problem with their water they had several years ago, problems that they are still working through. Look, the, if everything goes right here in Benton Harbor, it'll be 18 months before all those lead line pipes are replaced. But even if that happens, there are so many other communities across the country that have similar issues. Jake. All right, Miguel Marquez in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Thanks so much. Follow the money. And you'll find the seditionists, the new CNN reporting on the January 6th committee strategy. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead up, Jake Tapper. This hour, Art of the Steel, how President Trump's new social media venture that does not yet exist is causing a bloated mess of a frenzy on Wall Street. Brian Laundrie is dead. Did he take with him his secrets about Gabby Petito's death? The latest on what authorities are finding in the swamp and what his family is saying. But first, leading this hour, new reporting on the January 6th committee. Sources telling CNN that the committee is following the money that paid for Stop the Steal rallies. Rallies that mutated into the deadly riot, of course. And there was more ugliness on Capitol Hill yesterday after the vote to hold Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress for ignoring the subpoena from investigators. Let's get right to CNN's Ryan Noble's live for us on Capitol Hill. And Ryan, you have some brand new reporting on who will talk to the committee. Yeah, that's right, Jake. Uh, CNN is learning that Jeffrey Clark, the former Department of Justice official who was uh, among a group of Trump associates trying to peddle the big lie in the days after the November election, uh, even reaching out to state officials to try and convince them uh, to at least investigate uh, claims of voter fraud in different states, uh, is set to meet with the committee next Friday. You'll remember that Clark uh, was initially negotiating with the committee, trying uh, to find some way to cooperate with them, but the committee was unhappy uh, with his level or lack of cooperation, which forced the subpoena. Well, the committee had set a date of next Friday for Clark to come forward, and we are being told that both Clark, his attorneys, and the committee are prepared for him to come in next Friday, that it looks as though he is going to do that. And Clark isn't the only person that we're learning about uh, that is talking to the committee or preparing to talk to the committee. Alyssa Farah, the former director of strategic communications at the White House, she has voluntarily come before the committee, talking specifically with Republican members of the committee about what she knew and what happened uh, during the time of January 6th. We don't know specifics about what she detailed or uh, how uh, if she could come before the committee before, but both Farah and Clark, two significant names at the committee looking to get information from here, Jake, uh, as their investigation moves forward. Uh, in addition, Ryan, you're reporting that the investigators associated with the committee are, are trying to follow the money. What specifically are they looking for? Yeah, Jake, this is a pretty interesting detail that we've learned, that the committee has essentially broken up their investigative teams into different groups with specific areas of focus. And one of those groups, which they've labeled the green team, is specifically looking into the money trail. They want to know who funded some of these rallies that took place on January 6th and in the days leading up to January 6th 
to see if there's any coordination between the former president, the, the Trump campaign, and others uh, to see if that uh, played some role in contributing to the violence and chaos here uh, on Capitol Hill on January 6th. The committee members telling us specifically uh, that they want to know who paid uh, to bring tra the travel for people to get here to Washington for hotel rooms, bus trips, and etc. Uh, they believe that there is uh, something that they can learn about this money trail and how it contributed to what happened here on January 6th. Also yesterday, we saw conspiracy theorist and Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, approach and accost uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, Jake, I mean, this is just an example of how things uh, are, are very tense here on Capitol Hill. And this happened uh, during the debate over the criminal contempt referral of Steve Bannon. Uh, and uh, Taylor Greene walked behind uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney and Congressman Jamie Raskin during that debate uh, and, and basically accused them of making too much out of this and saying that they were focused on the wrong things. Uh, it, it delved into a, a shouting match on some level between the three of them uh, and Liz Cheney actually called calling Marjorie Taylor Greene a joke and bringing up the fact uh, that she had talked about Jewish space lasers at one point, uh, a claim that Greene uh, very much denies. So it, this just shows the acrimony here on Capitol Hill, Jake. Uh, a lot of tension, uh, especially when it comes to issues like what happened here on January 6th. Well, it is a fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene posted on Facebook a crazy accusation that a number, number of notable Jewish Americans I mean, this is all just an insane anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, but that these Jewish Americans had control of some sort of laser and were causing forest fires to profit or something. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's just a fact. She did do that. I mean, anyway. Yes. Ryan, yes, no <laughs> Ryan <laughs> yes, Nobles, thank you so much. Yep. Attorney General Merrick Garland will have to make the ultimate decision about whether or not to prosecute Steve Bannon. CNN's Jessica Schneider uh, joins us now live. And Jessica, it is rare for the Department of Justice to prosecute somebody for not complying with the subpoena. So how do you think this process will play out? And, and should Democrats be managing expectations a bit, he, a bit here about what Attorney General Garland is going to do? I think they should be managing expectations. This could play out in really one of three ways, and it might not happen quickly. So right now, prosecutors, they're likely examining some legal issues, also maybe building out a legal case to determine one of three things that could happen. They could decline to bring charges against Steve Bannon, of course. They could also quickly bring a criminal complaint against Bannon, or they could bring it right to the grand jury, which could then determine whether or not to indict. The interesting thing is there's not a lot of precedent about this. Um, the U.S. attorney back in 2015 declined to bring charges against uh, an IRS official, Lois Lerner. And then way back in 1983, it did only take eight days from the time of referral to bring it to a grand jury. That was in a case involving an EPA. EPA official Rita Lavelle. She was ultimately, though, acquitted. But in this case, there's a lot more at play here. We have this whole executive privilege issue, which, of course, the former president has directed Steve Bannon and others not to comply with this subpoena. So that could potentially serve as a defense for Steve Bannon. But either way here, Jake, the U.S. attorney here in D.C., Merrick Garland, neither of them tipping their hand at all. They continue to say in statements, and we saw Merrick Garland testifying yesterday, that they will follow the facts and law to make an independent decision as to what they ultimately do here. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Uh, let's discuss all of this with Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California. She's a member of the House Judiciary Committee, also a member of the January 6th Select Committee. Congresswoman, thanks so much. For joining us, we just learned that your committee is going to hear from Jeffrey Clark, the former Trump Justice Department official. What do you want to hear from him? What, what is he going to testify about? 
Well, our posture has been that we're not going to discuss uh, publicly or with the press, the witnesses, what we're going to ask and the like. But we've said from the beginning that we want to find out uh, what was planned, uh, what was the intent, who paid for it. And I think Mr. Clark certainly has um, information about what was planned uh, and what the intent was. So we will hopefully learn even more uh, from uh, his appearance and his discussion. Uh, you know, we're very committed to getting to the bottom of everything about January 6th and leading up to it, not only to understand what happened, but to make sure we take whatever steps we can to make sure that nothing like this happens again. Congresswoman, you've said that part of this criminal contempt referral about Steve Bannon is to send a message to Bannon that he violated the law, but you're also trying to send a message to other individuals who might be thinking about defying your committee's subpoenas. So far, Dan Scavino's lawyer, Dan Scavino being the former Trump uh, White House Deputy Chief of Staff, Scavino's lawyer says that Scavino is not ready to testify. Uh, How likely is it that there will be a vote for a criminal contempt referral for Dan Scavino as well? Well, we can't get ahead of ourselves. There will be additional discussions. But let's just say this. The law is clear. There's no absolute immunity, even for the lawyer for the White House. The Don Don McGahn case made that clear. And I asked the attorney general when he was before the Judiciary Committee uh, yesterday whether, in his view, that was still good law. And he said it is. It's still good law. You don't have absolute immunity. If you have a privilege that you want to claim, you have to come into the committee and claim it. Let's take it out of the executive privilege area and say that you have a Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself. You have to go in and assert that claim for each question. And for all you know, uh, the Congress may grant you immunity from prosecution, and then you would have to answer the question. You can't just say to the Congress, no, thank you. That's not what a subpoena is all about. You just heard our reporter, Jessica Schneider, note that it is, it is extremely rare uh, for a prosecution of somebody who defy, defied a subpoena. Um, what will you do if Attorney General Garland decides to take a pass on prosecuting Bannon? I'll just say it's extremely rare for a violent mob of 10,000 people to attack the Capitol and try and overturn the Constitution and the counting of the votes of the Electoral College. So I think, uh, you know, the Attorney General and the Department of Justice will take a look at the facts in the law, but the law is very clear. Uh, uh, Bannon doesn't have the right not to appear, not to respond to this um, uh, subpoena, to uh, blow off the Congress, and uh, I'm not going to speculate what if uh, DOJ doesn't take action. I'll wait and see what they do. We heard uh, from Congresswoman Liz Cheney on the floor of the House uh, that Congressman Jim Banks, the Republican who originally had been named to the committee, the committee you're on, the January 6th committee, uh, but then Pelosi said she wasn't going to seat him because he's an election liar. Uh, and then even regardless of that, uh, McCarthy withdrew his name, that he has been sending letters to government agencies, every agency that your committee has requested information from, and he's claiming that he's a rank, he is the ranking Republican on the committee. He writes that in his <laughs> signature. Uh, he's not, obviously. Uh, Liz Cheney is, uh, vice chair of the committee. Lying to the government usually does not go unpunished. I'm sure if I did this, I would get in trouble. 
what do you make of this? Well, obviously, he lies not just about the election, but about himself. That's a, it's a ridiculous thing that he's done and highly improper. Whether the Ethics Committee will initiate an inquiry, I cannot know. Uh, but certainly his, uh, his behavior has been improper, highly improper. And I was glad that Congresswoman Cheney called him out on it. Earlier this week, the former Secretary of State during the Bush administration, Condoleezza Rice, said on The View that the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol was an assault on law and order. But she also said this. What happened on January 6th was wrong. I also know that as a government and as a country, we've got to be concerned about the things that are making life hard for Americans and hard for American families. This is an argument we're, we're hearing a lot from Republicans, the idea that the January 6th committee is focused on something that isn't going to change the lives of Americans one way or another. It doesn't help with daycare. It doesn't help with jobs, et cetera. What do you say to that? Well, as you're aware, I think, Jake, we are pursuing the Build Back Better agenda uh, in a, a whole variety of things, the infrastructure plan that will have a, a very important impact on the day-to-day lives of Americans. But let's, I, let's say this. If the plotters succeed, if our democratic republic is not preserved, I think that will matter a great deal to the American people and have a profound impact on the lives of every American. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, thanks so much. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Ready for a weekend boost? What you need to know before your third vaccine shot, or second if you've got the J&J, and what we need to still worry about in terms of the rest of the world. Plus, the search is over, but the discovery of Brian Laundrie's remains is unearthing new questions. Stay with us. In our Healthy Today on your marks, get set, boost. The CDC director's final sign-off for eligible adults who got Moderna or Johnson & Johnson means that booster shots can start going into your arms right now. And good news when it comes to vaccinating children, too. Pfizer says its shot is safe and nearly 91% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID in kids ages 5 to 11. Joining us now, Dr. Ashish Jha, the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jha, I want to get your opinion on what we heard from CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky earlier today. Take a listen. If you are um, uh, eligible for a boost and you're pregnant, you should also get your boost during that period of time. And I would say for nursing as well. Would you also encourage pregnant women to get a booster? Yeah, Jake, first of all, thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Pregnant women are at very high risk of bad complications of covid COVID is very dangerous in pregnancy, and so I completely agree with the CDC director. If you're pregnant, you've been vaccinated, good time to get a boost if you, um, uh, if you are six months out from your second shot. Pfizer says it has data showing that its smaller dose vaccine, about a third of the, of the size of the vaccine uh, for kids, is nearly 91% effective in preventing the kids from getting any sort of symptomatic COVID infection. Uh, Put that in perspective for us. How promising might this be for ending the pandemic? 
Two, two things on this, Jake. First of all, it's phenomenal. It's a really high level of efficacy. Uh, this is the kind of stuff we saw early days of Pfizer before the Delta variant and other variants of concern came into effect. So uh, I thought that was pretty compelling. Uh, kids need to get vaccinated because it's going to be good for them. It's going to protect them. Obviously, it's also going to add population immunity to our broader population. will help bring infection numbers down. Uh, it is going to be one more important step towards getting to the end of this pandemic. Dr. Jay Varkey of Emory University said this morning, quote, vaccines don't end pandemics, vaccinations do. A World Health Organization official says countries, mostly in the Southern Hemisphere, are still 500 million doses short. This is a global virus, not one that doesn't care about borders. We know the U.S. has shared more doses than any other country in the world, but does the U.S. need to focus more energy on vaccinations overseas before boosting at home? Yeah, so the good news is we can do both. I mean, so should we be doing more on global vaccinations? Absolutely. We should be focusing more on increased production, sharing more. We still have too many doses that are expiring in our pharmacies and going to waste. We should be getting them out more efficiently and effectively. Uh, We have so many vaccine doses here right now that we can share them and vaccinate or boost the vulnerable Americans who need that uh, additional shot. So I don't see it as a trade-off, Jake, but I absolutely agree we need to do more on global vaccinations. A study published on the CDC website today shows that people who got any COVID vaccine were less likely to die from any cause, not just COVID, um, compared to unvaccinated people. That tells us the vaccines are, are definitively safe. What else does it tell you about maybe the, just the kinds of people who decide to get the vaccine? Yeah. So first of all, right, it is absolutely clear that vaccines are incredibly safe at this point. Again, half of humanity has gotten at least one shot of a COVID vaccine, uh, three and a half billion people. That's extraordinary. Very safe. I think on the issue of what that overall mortality impact, some of it is maybe that the people who are getting vaccinated tend to lead safer lives. Some of it is, I think, that because when you get COVID, it can trigger so many other health problems and complications that it's really having a profound effect in all sorts of different ways. The CDC director says they might need to update the definition of fully vaccinated. Do you worry that updating the definition to include boosters might further discourage the 64 million eligible Americans who haven't even gotten their first dose? Yeah, you know, this is a really good question. We've seen some evidence on polling that that might happen. Uh, At the end of the day, we've got to do what the scientific evidence says. And, you know, there are other vaccines, Hep B, for instance, which are three-dose vaccines. If the evidence says this is a three-dose vaccine, we should treat it that way and then work to help people get comfortable getting it. Uh, That's, I think, the right approach. We've just got to let the evidence drive this. All right, Dr. Ashish Jha, thanks so much. Good to see you again. Coming up, it's go time. What can bring Democrats together to save Biden's agenda, maybe even his presidency? That's next. Topping our politics lead, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she is hopeful she can get a vote next week on either the bipartisan infrastructure bill or President Biden's sweeping social safety net package. Pelosi says they are more than 90 percent of the way there, but time's running out. And as President Biden joked last night, there are a lot of folks in this town with their own priorities. So it is a battle to get on the same page. When you're in the United States Senate and you're a president of the United States and you have 50 Democrats, everyone is a president. <laughs> Every single one. So you got to work things out. Joining us live to discuss Caitlin Collins at the White House, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Uh, Caitlin, you have some new insight into how these final steps, these final negotiations are going forward. Uh, what are you learning? 
Yeah, Jake, essentially the White House says they're viewing this through a very realistic lens here because they know that there is going to be there are going to be some hard choices when it comes to what's actually going to be in the final framework of this. And the way that the press secretary, Jen Psaki, described it earlier was either there is no alternative for a larger bill here. The only alternative in their eyes is that there's no bill at all. And so that is why you're seeing President Biden speak so candidly, as he did last night during that town hall, about realistically what's going to be in this bill and what's going to be cut from it, including one of his biggest priorities that he touted time and time again on the campaign trail, which was those two free years of community college. The president openly saying that it is because Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema are opposed to that, that that is not going to make it into this bill. And so it's not just that, Jake, of course, there is also the paid family leave being slashed from 12 weeks to four weeks. Of course, the idea of not raising corporate taxes, which is polling is one of the most popular aspects of this proposal, now seems unlikely to be the way that the White House is going to pay for it as Democrats are trying to figure out a new way to do so. And so the final hours are ticking on. The White House is saying there's not really a deadline here, even though Democrats do have that self-imposed deadline of today to make an announcement about an agreement for a framework. The White House says they're not really coming up with any deadlines, Jake. They're just going to have the president continuing to speak to lawmakers throughout this weekend. And Manu, some progressives are telling you that they're feeling exasperated. Tell us more about that. Yeah, because of the concessions that they've had to make. And a lot of them feel powerless at this point in the talks because the talks are all revolving about whether or not Senators Sinema and Manchin can be ultimately satisfied and signed on to a deal and making concessions on some of the key priorities, whether it's ranging from an expansion of Medicare to climate change to other issues such as the how far to extend the child tax credit. All those issues now coming to a head. And all this also tied to that other big issue, the bipartisan an infrastructure bill that is awaiting action in the House. There's a reason why there's a deadline of today of sorts to reach a larger agreement on just an outline of that larger bill is because they want to try to assuage progressives that it's okay to vote yes on that bipartisan infrastructure bill that the Democratic leaders want to bring to the floor next week. But in talking to progressives, some are warning that they will vote against that infrastructure bill if that larger bill is not approved by both chambers of Congress. I think it'll be dangerous, and I don't want to think, do anything dangerous for the American people. Senator Sinema, Senator Manchin, like, come to my district and visit with my folks. You know, come and talk to the people who actually live out what you're trying to uh, uh, overlook. You don't care, but we do. Medicare expansion might not get in this. Tuition-free community college is not going to get in this. Are you disappointed about that? Well, of course we're disappointed, you know, that we, we want all of it. So as cinema has been opposed to raising the corporate tax rate as well as the tax rate on the highest earners, there is discussion about a number of other tax provisions that could help finance this package that Democratic leaders have been promised to be fully paid for. One of those proposals, Jake, is a billionaire's tax. One of the, some of the details that are now being circulated would affect about 700 individuals who have income of more than $100 million for three straight years, as well as assets of that much, as well as the $1 billion in assets here. So, Jake, the question is, will that be enough to satisfy someone like Senator Sinema? I'm told that she is optimistic that a deal could be reached within days. All right, Caitlin Collins, Manu Raju, thanks to both of you. Let's discuss with my panel. Uh, Stead, let me start with you. Speaker Pelosi says she's hopeful there could be a vote on infrastructure uh, next week. That's not a commitment that there will be a vote. But then again, she's made some commitments before that she had to uh, take back. Do you think there are any consequences 
if the Democrats blow through the October 31st self-imposed deadline? Yeah, I mean, we've heard a number of these deadlines. That's the thing about these self-imposed deadlines is that you can also blow straight through them. I do think there's a risk of consequences, though. One, uh, President Biden has talked about that uh, climate summit in Glasgow as a reason to get this done quickly, partly because so many folks in the international community are looking for the U.S. to have a real leadership in law and not just these executive actions. I think there's consequences to that. But there's political consequences, too. Uh, When you have Democrats... uh, talking consistently about what's not going in this bill, about what they're cutting down, about what they have, uh, what, what they're stripping away. Uh, I don't think that that's the message they want to take into next year in the midterms. The hope of this, the promise of this, was that they were going to be able to say, this is what we have done. This is how President Biden has expanded past. There was that FDR moment, right? What we're coming at now is not uh, another new deal. And that is going to be a challenge for Democrats to be able to go back and say, hey, because uh, this is, again, just the start of the agenda. There is still voting rights. There is still police reform. And this is just showing the challenges that President Biden will have to face on that front. Uh, uh, if infrastructure is, is, is going like this, you know the rest of the agenda uh, will be also an uphill climb. Francesca, do you think that cinema and mansion ultimately uh, are going to come go along with a deal? Do you think that there's, there is a deal to be had? Well, the president seemed to lay out really clear areas where he was going to have to move off of the things that he wanted to see in this bill in order to get them on board. And the White House today spent a lot of time, by the way, uh, trying to explain what some of those things might be and how they would end up paying for the bill. Caitlin mentioned Free Community College, for instance. The president last night conceded that that would not be in there and said he would have to come back and get that later. Things like paid family leave. Now it's down to four weeks, but the White House left open the room today that that could potentially be more than four weeks. So there's still a lot of outstanding questions, Jake, about what Manchin and Cinema would support and from there what the White House is willing to give up. And, and Paul, uh, Ested raises also an interesting point about how much of the conversation in the last week or so has been about what's not going to be in the bill. Right. So how upset could that, could that leave progressives uh, ultimately if, even if there is what would be empirically and a significant legislative achievement. I mean, whether or not you like it, it's, it will be a legislative achievement. Um, but if it doesn't have uh, uh, increased taxes on the top bracket, if it doesn't have an increase in corporate taxes, if it doesn't have free community college, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, how much will uh, progressives be demoralized? That's a great question. Right now, their, their members of Congress are telling them to be demoralized, and that's a terrible message. But that's a tactic, not a strategy. Right. Once they get it, you watch. They will pivot mm-hmm. and say, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. And they'll be right about that, too. You know, the, 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 the politicians are very good at this, right? This, right now, they're in this uh, negotiating. But if they do get the kinds of things they're talking about, this could be huge and transformational. Everything that the progressives want. The, one of the rules that I've learned in politics is, though, is you never oppose a bill because of what's not in it. You know, Lyndon Johnson famously took the voting rights section out of his civil rights bill in 1964. That was was the worst thing he could have done, but he had to to get it passed. Guess what? He came back the next year and got it. The 64 Civil Rights Act was still a terrific piece of legislation. He came back the next year. Progressives will come back the next year and the year after, and they'll keep coming with with trying to fulfill their agenda, and that's what they should do. Linda, as the conservative of the table, what do you think of all this? Is this, I mean, are you, Mitt Romney was talking about this is just an incredibly reckless, irresponsible amount of money that's being spent. What do you think? Well, first of all, Uh, I think it is too much money that was originally proposed. Uh, I also disagree uh, with my friend Paul on on the question of this being, you know, a great uh, social program like the Great Society. The Great Society programs 
went through after debate, after there were hearings, after there was consideration of what was in them. The Civil Rights Act had enormous debate, and you were able during that process to win over uh, the American people. Part of the problem with this is that we heard Joe Biden as a candidate talking about being a deal maker, talking about listening to the other side. Uh, and then at least as this you know, originally came out, it was like trying to force down the throats of people like me who voted for him, uh, like independents who voted for him, um, who were not going to buy into these and certainly needed to be persuaded on it. And they have done very little persuading. Well, you didn't, you didn't realize that the other side meant Kirsten Cinema. You, you, you <laughs> thought it meant Mitch McConnell. Let's turn to something else that President Biden said during the town hall uh, and comments he made about visiting the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, I've been there before, and I haven't, I mean, I know it well. I guess I should go down, but the, but, but the whole point of it is I haven't had a whole hell of a lot of time to get down. I've been spending time going around looking at the $900 billion worth of damage done by, uh, by hurricanes and floods and, and weather and, tra- and traveling around the world. I mean, he did go down there before in 2008, which is a few years ago, um, but you, uh, somebody in Texas or Arizona, New Mexico, California, they could be forgiven for thinking this is not a priority for this guy. And he was pressed on, or not he, the, uh, Jen Psaki was pressed on that today during the White House press briefing, especially the part where he said, I should go down. So I would expect <laughs> that the White House will continue to get pressed on this. The question is whether it rises to the level of like we saw with Vice President Kamala Harris, where eventually she did go down to the border because there was so much political pressure on her to do that. Once she did that, the issue mostly went away for her for quite a long time until uh, tell some more of the recent issues. So that's an outstanding question. Also. Could, could, could I just say the problem is not at the border. The problem is in Washington. We could solve the problem at the border tomorrow if we pass sensible immigration reform. We have 10 million jobs going wanting in the United States. Our population is not growing in the way it has in the past. We need an infusion of immigrants into the United States, and it ought to be legal. But you can't do that unless you change immigration laws and allow some of the people who are trying to come in as asylees to come in simply as people who are willing to work and to take jobs that Americans won't take. Paul, you're from Texas. I agree substantively, but politically, no way. We couldn't get comprehensive immigration reform when we had Ted Kennedy and John McCain and President George W. Bush. Couldn't get it then. There's no chance in the world you get it now. So my view is you work in the White House and, and you are choosing every day between the urgent and the important. You know, the trivial doesn't get to you. This is important, but it's not urgent. The infrastructure bill is urgent. Healthcare is urgent. COVID is urgent. The Build Back Better plan is urgent. He's doing the right thing in focusing on that. The, the border is an issue to be managed. It is not legislation to be passed. Instead, I, I want to bring up something else that uh, President Biden said uh, yesterday in terms of whether or not he would be opening uh, to getting rid of the filibuster, yeah. at least just to pass some sort of uh, voter protection or voting rights uh, bill. One of the reasons we, we like uh, interviewing Joe Biden is because sometimes he accidentally uh, says what he actually <laughs> thinks. Take, take a listen. But when it comes to voting rights, voting rights you, is equally as consequential. When it comes to voting rights, just so I'm clear, though, you would entertain the notion of doing away with the filibuster on that one issue. Is that correct? And maybe more. And maybe more. But he (laughs) said he wasn't going to bring it up now. I mean, again, telling the truth, because it could piss off the three uh, three Democrats he needs to to pass his Build Back Better uh, Act. But 
that's the farthest he's gone on Absolutely. getting ready, getting rid of the filibuster, not just for voting rights, but for other legislation as well. That moment of openness is what a lot of folks have been looking for for a long time from President Biden, uh, particularly the progressive side, who has been b- hoping that he would openly push for the end of the filibuster and that he would also put pressure on the mansions and cinemas and even others in the uh, Senate Democratic caucus who aren't open there. But we this still has a huge uh, uh, road uh, ahead of him on this front. I think it's amazing that the president was just openly willing to admit that the reason he won't do it now is because he needs these votes. <laughs> but down the line, he'll think about it. Uh, but this is a big concession from President Biden. I remember when he was on the trail saying that he was popular in these folks' homes districts, that he was popular in conservative areas, and he thinks they would come around to working with them. What I hear in that answer is that he has gotten a reality check about where Washington is now versus where it is then. And that means that there might be some different structures he has to embrace that he wasn't willing to on the trail. Michael, Mike Kinsley used to call it a gaffe is when a politician accidentally tells the truth. <laughs> I was going to say, but he also brought up the debt ceiling when we're talking about mm-hmm. how far away from this he could be. He could only be till December before he could potentially mm-hmm. change his position on this if they do not have the votes to extend the debt ceiling beyond that. No, I, I, I don't McConnell know how much. a huge mistake yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, Senator McConnell Republican leader in the Senate by giving no votes yep. whatsoever to Joe Manchin's voting rights bill. Joe Manchin was yeah. Secretary of State of West Virginia. He was very progressive on voting rights, always has been. I've talked to him about this. He believes in this. He's not, you know, going to kill voting rights. He's sponsoring it with Amy Klobuchar now. McConnell didn't give him a single vote. And I think that can start to push Manchin into reforming the filibuster for voting rights. And I think that's why President Biden said that last night. I think he's having those conversations right Thank now. you so much to my panel. Have a great weekend. Did the Laundry family lawyer just reveal too much? A potential giveaway after Brian Laundry was found dead. That's next. International lead, the search is over, but key questions remain. A medical examiner is working to determine a cause of death for Brian Laundrie after his remains were discovered and identified in a Florida swamp this week. Experts tell CNN that process can be tricky. Laundrie vanished last month after his fiancée, Gabby Petito, was reported missing, but before her body was found. Her body, of course, was found strangled to death. CNN's Layla Santiago joins us now live from Sarasota County, Florida. And Layla... The family attorney told a local news crew that his parents, Brian Laundrie's parents, quote, knew their son was grieving the last time they saw him. But when you look at the calendar, Gabby Petito's body had not yet been discovered, according to that timeline, the last time they saw him. So is that essentially an admission that their son killed her? Well, listen, we have reached out to the attorney, Stephen Bertolino, about that. He has not responded to our request for any sort of clarification. But this morning on Good Morning America, he was asked, what exactly did the parents think that Brian Laundrie was grieving, given what you're saying, the the calendar, the timeline, right? Because their timeline indicates that Brian Laundrie was last seen Monday, September 13th. Gabby Petito's remains were found uh, September 19th. That was the following Sunday. So what exactly was he grieving? Well, he didn't address the time discrepancy there, but he did say that Brian was very upset, so much so that his parents were concerned about him and they regret not having stopped him from leaving. He also provided some insight as to some of the possibilities that the family has discussed. Remember, 
where we are all, including the family, waiting for more information from the medical examiner as to the cause or manner of death of Brian Laundrie. Uh, but apparently, between the attorney and the parents, they have discussed the possibility uh, that Brian could have killed himself. Now, he has been asked by multiple reporters, the attorney, if they have anything to say to the Petito family or to the FBI regarding Gabby's disappearance. And on both of them, uh, he has declined to make any further or additional statements. In the meantime, Jake, we are continuing to wait for more information from the medical examiner here in Sarasota County to get more information as to how Brian Laundrie died here in this reserve where he was found, and also from investigators to find out what information they have been able to gather regarding the belongings they found near his body, a notebook, a book bag, the clothing he was wearing, a bunch of unanswered questions still today, and they're hoping that that can provide some insight. All right, Lila Santiago, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The Supreme Court steps in the ring in the Texas abortion fight. What that might mean for women's health. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, we learned that the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments on the controversial Texas abortion law on November 1st. In agreeing to hear the case under an expedited time frame, the court said it would focus on the unusual way that the Texas legislature crafted the law. The law, as you might recall, it bans most abortions in the state after six weeks before many women even know they're pregnant. And it turns private citizens into something like bounty hunters. But in a move angering critics, the justices will allow the Texas law to remain in effect for now. CNN's Ariane DeVogue joins us now live for more on this. And Ariane, this is a very quick timetable for oral arguments. What does that suggest to you? This whole thing could have been a compromise of sorts, right? This law remains in effect. So Roe is a dead letter right now in the state of Texas. But they have these hearings really, really quickly uh, for them to be able to weigh in. And that's maybe why you didn't see the liberal justices, Kagan and Breyer, dissent here. But there was a big clue in today's order, just what you said, the fact that they are going to look at how this law is structured. Because, as you know, uh, Texas officials can't enforce it these private individuals can. And Texas and all these lawsuits keep saying, look, we can't, um, you're suing the wrong person. We can't enforce this. That could worry the justices, and I know it worries some conservatives, because what happens if a liberal state then decides to pass a very similar law, say, on gun rights? Then you'd see the conservatives racing to the Supreme Court. So maybe that's why they're interested in taking this up just that question and dealing with it as quickly as they can. Justice uh, Sotomayor, one of, the, one of the liberal justices, she sharply criticized her colleagues for once again allowing the ban to remain in effect. She called the expedited schedule for arguments uh, cold comfort for women in Texas uh, who might need to get an abortion for whatever reason. How should we interpret what she says? really shows you her role on this court. She's not like the other liberal justices. She's not trying to find compromise. She is coming out with this fiery dissent, and she's saying, look what the court's doing here. I'm not going to try to minimize it. Look at the impact of this law on poor women, on minors, 
uh, about the fact that the law has no exception for rape or incest. She really wants to push those um, points. And of course, it comes at such a fraught time with this court because they're trying to sort of publicly say that everything is civil and they're communicating well. But behind the scenes, you've got those three conservative justices who want to move fast to the right. You've got Barrett and Kavanaugh, two of Trump's nominees. We're not quite sure where they are. And then you've got the chief justice. He's trying to move more incrementally because, of course, he's worried about the institution of the court. And then the liberals are always in this perpetual dissent. So that's where things are now. It's a really fraught time, and they're in the spotlight. That's a place they hate to be. And even if they get rid of the Texas law, and who knows if they will or not, there's still the Mississippi uh, 15-week abortion ban that's uh, coming their way. Uh, Regardless, Ariane DeVoke, thank you so much. Appreciate it. File it under, oops, uh, the aviation state messed up the launch of a new license plate and the jokes, well, they took off. Buckle up. That's next. In our national lead, I'm not sure if you notice anything off about Ohio's new license plate uh, design there. The Wright Brothers plane flies a birthplace of aviation banner over an Ohio skyline. Grassy hills and fields of weed. But North Carolina, the first in flight state, was quick to point out, well, a little mistake. That banner is flying from the front of the plane, not the back. North Carolina tweeting this humble brag. Y'all leave Ohio alone. They wouldn't know they weren't there. And apologizes for apologize apologies now for this actually, but just to correct the record here, in 2003, Congress officially recognized Ohio as the birthplace of aviation because the Wright brothers grew up in Dayton. That's where they had their bike shop. That's where they developed their first manned powered aircraft. But Ohio wasn't there when the plane lifted off from the sandy beaches of North Carolina in 1903. And then actually, despite popular misconception, that wasn't in Kitty Hawk. It was in the more ominously named Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina. So I guess we'll let you decide who should claim bragging rights, <clears throat> North Carolina. But Ohio's Bureau of Motor Vehicles did make sure to correct the mistake, and they tweeted out this updated version of the design. Nice work, Ohio. Be sure to tune in to CNN State of the Union this Sunday. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, will join me for an exclusive, as well as Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, plus Arkansas Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson will be here live. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook. On Instagram, on Twitter, on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. A reminder if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. And until Sunday morning, I bid you adieu. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Be nice to him now, he's a good guy. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. 
It could be used on an upcoming episode.